So we thank you, Lord, for this good day and for your word, for the shining forth into our hearts, Lord, in revelation. And we thank you for the ongoing work of sanctification through the Holy Spirit. And we pray that this morning would serve that end, God. Transform us by the renewing of our minds, Lord, and heal us that we might be healed, God. I pray, Father, for your word to come forth with clarity. And I pray for ears to hear and eyes to see, Lord, what you're doing in this season. And we love you, Lord. Amen and amen. Last week, our brother Drew shared such a great word in season about overcoming despair. If you weren't here, I highly encourage going back and listening to that. He spoke about the Dead Sea being the lowest place. There's nothing that flows out of it and the salt content. And he talked about the rivers of life that are meant to flow freely. He got towards the end of his sermon and he talked about crying out, learning to cry out for salvation, not internalizing, but, but actually asking for help from the Lord. And then I followed that up with talking about the, the green fog that settled on the children of, of Narnia at the end of the voyage of the Dawn Treader. And when they were closest to the end, closest to victory, is when the temptation to despair got the strongest. They were so tempted to give up at the very end when victory was so close at hand. And I read out of Isaiah 61 how a garment of praise is what replaces a spirit of heaviness. And so in the despondency that we all have to deal with from time to time, from day to day, week to week, a garment of praise is really the only way out of that. And it involves getting our mouth moving and proclaiming the truth. And I read this quote from Madame Guyon, a French mystic from the 17th century. I want to read it again to you because it just struck my heart so much. She says, give no place to despondency. It's a dangerous temptation. It's a refined, not a gross temptation of the adversary. It's a very noble, high and noble, lofty thing. Melancholy contracts and withers the heart and it renders it unfit to receive the impressions of grace. It magnifies and gives false coloring to objects and thus renders your burdens too heavy to bear. She's saying here, don't toy around with despair. With that evil temptation that seems so noble to be so introspective to sit down in that pit. She says, don't do it. It's not a gross temptation. Like, look at this evil, rotten sin that you can take place. It's a different, it's a refined temptation. It's very subtle, but it renders us unable to receive impressions of grace. Don't play with despondency. Well, as the number one offender in this room, I preach to myself today as much as I preach to any of you all. Who knows what it's like to live in despondency? Yes, maybe for hours, days, weeks, maybe it's a year, maybe it's a regular cycle of your life. 
Who knows what it's like to feel freedom in Jesus' name from that? And all of a sudden you can breathe again spiritually. You have clarity. Well, this is a human condition, and this is one of the primary battles that we have to deal with. This is the Amalekites. When Israel comes out of Egypt to go into the promised land, the first enemy they encounter was the Amalekites to keep them from possessing the promised land. Well, this is the flesh. This is the flesh warring against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. This is a battle we all must face. And I tell you, it's being emphasized in this season so much, I believe, because the Lord has great victory very close at hand for many of you in here. So today is part three, victory through despair. I was laying in bed two mornings ago. I was, uh, being, I was being awakened, but I was kind of partially asleep and I heard loud and clear, preach victory. So I'm here today to preach victory to you that we've already won in Jesus' name. Do you understand we're 100 points ahead in the NBA championship and there's three seconds left on the clock and the enemy has the ball. The opposing team has the ball right now on the court. We're 100 points ahead. Nothing to fear. In fact, you can start celebrating right now. The game is not over yet, but church, we've already won. It's impossible. Change the number if you don't like it. We're a million points ahead. A trillion. It's impossible for the enemy to win. So who cares? Who cares if they run down and make a basket and somebody dies? Who cares if you lose your... Who cares? We've won. There's nothing to fear, Jonathan Brickley. There's nothing to fear, church. This is more about submitting and resisting than it is bearing despair. Listen to me. This, this arena is about submitting to God, resisting the devil, instead of just bearing despair and getting through to the other side. I think a lot of us confuse this despairing and despondency with just our lot in life or just something I have to get through. It'll be better on Tuesday. Mondays just stink. And I'm telling you, this is not scriptural reality. This is about submitting to God and saying, no, I will not go to that place. I've been bought. I've been redeemed. I'm a child of God. I have nothing to fear. That changes you from the inside out. So, last week, preach, I share a word, and then every teacher knows this. There's no studying of material in your textbook unless a test is coming, yeah? It's pointless to study unless you have a test. Well, a test is like a plumb line. A test makes it real simple, real fast, how much you know. So last week, this word comes, I share my word, and then bam, I get a chance to practice what I preached. I give myself a C this last week on this test. I'm, I'm hoping to get better. Paul says, I'm going to come, 1 Corinthians 4, I'm going to come and I'm going to test you. He said, I'm going to discern the difference between your words, the words of arrogant people, and your power, he says. Because the kingdom of God does not consist in words. Words are cheap. The kingdom of God consists in power. So I need to know, Paul says, what the fire is doing to you. 
And so I got a chance to go through the fire this week. I didn't realize it at the time. I realized it on the back end. Dynamous power, strength, power, ability. That's what the kingdom of God, that's the metal of God's children. And he brings the fire to expose that. So this week I come home on Tuesday, Wednesday, and I'm dragging my feet in from a long day at work. I haven't done a great job being with my precious kids, my precious family, and I'm feeling pretty bad about my performance as a dad. And I am literally praying on my way from my truck to my house saying, Lord, I want to be a good father. I don't know how to do it. My mind feels like it's distracted a thousand different places. I feel miserable. I walk in, my precious family's there. They're encouraging me. And during dinner, I'm just, you know, just trying to get out of my own head. I'm just feeling miserable. Anybody ever felt miserable being a parent before maybe? Here's the best version of myself and this is where I'm at. This is where I need to be and this is where I'm at. Just despair over my performance. Get done with dinner. My phone rings out of the blue. He's not here today. Eric Loss calls. Hello, Eric. Jonathan, he says, do you know that light is sown like a seed for the righteous, according to Psalms 97? Uh, And as he says it to me, I feel the word just wash over my heart. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. I'm like, oh, that's so good. Because he said light's like a seed. And you sow it in and up from the ground, from the seed comes joy. And then there's righteousness and peace. The kingdom of God comes and then there's multiplication from this seed and multiple shafts of light come forth. I said, oh, it's so good. Let me pray for you, Eric, and pray for Addie. So I pray. And then he says, let me pray for you, brother. I said, okay. That's all we had talked about at this point. And he says, Holy Spirit, I pray that Jonathan's children would know how much he loves them. And I pray, he has no idea, no idea. And I pray that he would know that he's beloved by you as a son and that his children love him. Let them know his love for them. And I just break. I just can't believe this is happening. The goodness of the Lord comes flooding into my heart and I feel light release. A weight is lifted. And we go out and we play wee bowling with the kids. It's great. Harper comes and sits on my lap and tells me all the reasons she loves me. It's precious. Well, then I get to yesterday. And I wake up in the morning with the enemy on my face. And I hear all kinds of accusations about my performance as a pastor. And my lack and my weakness, and my insecurity, and all the things I should do better, and the version that I should be, and where I'm at right now, and I'm under it. I'm under it because of my performance that's lacking as a pastor. No one's as big an enemy as yourself, right? And the accuser of the brethren whispering phrases, and I'm agreeing with his phrases, and all the noble things that I could or should be doing better, and I'm agreeing. Anybody been there? Your performance as a husband, as a wife, as a worker, as a Christian, whatever the performance is, and I'm under the weight of it. So I'm sitting there studying. Go to your left, if you would, Psalm 68. I'm trying to press through. Pray with Lizzie for a moment. She goes to why. I'm under it. And I'm sitting there in Psalm 68. And who calls? 
but my Uncle Sam, out of the blue. Hey, buddy, how you doing? You were on my heart. I wanted to give you a call. It's like, well, thank you so much. And he begins for the next 30 minutes to pour into my heart Romans 15, 13. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he starts saying, you know what, Jonathan? Your life is a sermon. The very thing you're going through right now is a living epistle for the body of Christ. Everyone is dealing with this right now. And so here I am today to share with you my weakness, all of our weakness, right? I am completely set free in that moment. My eyes lift. I can see clearly. I jot down all the notes for what I want to say today, and then I load the kids up, and we go swimming at my parents. Just enjoy the day. I was on track both of those days for a different destination than what happened. Why is that? Well, the word of the Lord came and it divided soul and spirit within me. It was sharp, sharper than a double-edged sword, coming from two brothers who were moved by a little prompting of the Holy Spirit to call and give me that word at that moment, that exact moment in time. God is a weightlifter and he is very strong. Psalm 68 verse 19 says, Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. I just read this before Sam called me, by the way. Praise be to God our Savior, who daily bears us up. It doesn't say monthly or yearly. It says every day he bears our burdens for us. He's a weight lifter. But, take a left to Psalm 55, this comes with a caveat. We read it here this morning. God will not bear what we do not cast upon him. Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your cares, your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be moved or shaken or slip or fall or fail. Can you hear me? You have to cast those burdens on him for him to carry them. God will not, he cannot take the burdens that you do not put upon him. And so, for some reason, the last thing I thought about in my sad place was to call out for help. For some reason, I didn't think about that. I've only done this a thousand times. Why not? I don't know exactly, but I do know that God is a way better father than I am a son. And so what he does when I'm often not thinking of him, he's thinking of me. And so when I don't call upon him for salvation, in his gentle kindness, he reaches out his hand through my brothers and through my sisters, and their voice is like his hand on my shoulder, and in my weak and shaky frame, I can hear his voice say, take heart, I'm here. Take courage, son, it's going to be okay. And when that happens and he touches me through you, his hands and feet, I am all of a sudden enlivened. 
I'm made alive in the Holy Spirit. And so we go back to our right to Psalm 68. And this is what happens in Psalm 68, verse 3. But may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Sing to God. Sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. He is a father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. Listen, God sets the lonely, that's you and me, in families. That's the church. He sets the lonely in families. And he leads out the prisoners with singing. But the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. He lifted my burden, and as a prisoner, I was led out of that jail cell of despair, and I come forth with singing, praising his name. This is meant to be the Christian life every day, guys. And the reason we need each other is because we can't do this on our own. We need his hands to touch us. We need our brothers and sisters. This is why unity is so vital in the church. It's the only way we make it through. So, I have been studying the Israelites' responses to their time in transition from Egypt to the Promised Land. We've been spending some time on this. And I really feel like it goes along well with what we're talking about in this season. Because 1 Corinthians 10 says that everything in Israel's history that was written was written for our instruction. It was written so that we could learn and take warning from that. And we have examples Everything in Israel's history is for us to learn from. And so I want to lift out a little bit out of this story here. Going back to my earlier question, why don't we call out to God our deliverer for deliverance? You ever wonder why that is? Why do you look to the things of this world or to yourself or to even the accuser sometimes for deliverance? Well, and I, as I was meditating on this, I thought, why do abused women take on average seven times of substantial abuse before they leave their abuser? Why is that? Well, it's because of shame. It's because condemnation rests. They, they feel equally responsible. They're oftentimes manipulated by their abuser to say it's their fault. They don't want to betray their abuser, because he's been in some measure good to them. Seven times of substantial abuse before abused women leave. Well, the Israelites were abused for 430 years in Egypt. They were hurt emotionally, physically. They were subjected to harsh labor. And they needed, as often abused women need, they needed an outside voice to come in and give them some perspective. This is not normal. You're made for more than this. Leave. They needed the word of the Lord. And Moses was that outside voice that came in for Israel. But watch what happens with me. If you go to Exodus chapter 3, I want to walk you through a few points in their transition from slave thinking to free thinking. You start off with the rescue plan 
in Exodus 3.7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. The Lord saw it. The Lord heard it. They cried out for deliverance. They knew it was not good. They wanted out of it, yeah? But their mind had not yet caught up with what their heart really wanted. So the first step in chapter four is that God's children would believe. It wasn't that Pharaoh would believe. Chapter four says, Moses answered, what if they don't believe or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you. And then in verse five, it says, this said the Lord is so they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. First and foremost, to move into a new season, to transition, you have to believe. And the Israelites were struggling. They didn't even know yet, but they were struggling with unbelief. Well, the Lord helped them. He helped them to believe by what he performed for the elders in Israel. Look with me in verse 29 of chapter four. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses and he performed the signs before the people. Remember his staff turned into a snake? And they believed, the Israelites believed. And when they had heard all that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. This is good news. But their faith was passive at this point. It was not active. They had not been asked to do anything but believe Moses, the deliverer, that the Lord loved them that much. So many Christians right now are in passive faith. I believe what God says about me, but it has not transitioned yet into active. And so what happens after the miracles, after the belief, and after the worship, teachers, the testing happens. So what happens? Bricks without straw in chapter five. Pharaoh says, great, if you wanna leave, now you have to perform just as much without straw. It's hard. They beat them. The Israelites, instead of going to their deliverer for deliverance, where do they go, everybody? To their abuser. And they go, in verse 15 of chapter five, the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. They appealed to their abuser and they said, why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we're told to make bricks, as if Pharaoh didn't know that. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. And then Pharaoh, like that manipulative abuser, says, lazy, that's what you are, you're lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord, now get to work. Well, that's how they treated Pharaoh. And how do they treat their deliverer? Moses, who's coming to actually answer their prayer and set them free. Verse 20, when they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you because you have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and put a sword in their hands to kill us. See, a lot of the times the Lord will send people into your life that are actually speaking a word of deliverance for you. 
but it's so opposite of how you've been living, and it actually, their word causes you more problems than you had before, that you're like, I hate that man or woman of God for speaking that to me, because now my life has turned into this. It's actually gotten harder. I'll just go deal with my abuser, my, the world, the self, the devil, because that was easier back then. I'm telling you, this is so easy to do. Well, the Lord knows this, and the Lord loves them. So they appeal to Pharaoh, they shun Moses. It says in chapter 6, verse 9, they wouldn't listen to Moses because of their discouragement and their harsh labor. Well, then for the next multiple chapters, you get miracles again. We're back in the cycle of miracles. The Lord's showing signs and wonders to his people. All 10 plagues come down. And then we get, after they've seen all of this in the land of Egypt, Moses in chapter 12, verse 21, summons them all back again. Now listen, Israel is us. This is speaking to the church. Moses summons all the elders of Israel in 1221 and says to them, go at once and select animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. This is what's about to happen. You have to put blood on the doorpost. And then it says in verse 27, the sacrifice to the Lord is a Passover who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared their homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. Again, they're back to bowing down and worshiping. The Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So you see the shift here? The, the miracles happened before. They bowed down and worshiped and they believed mentally. But then the testing came and they fell apart. But now the miracles have happened again. They've bowed down and worshiped and they believe, except now they have active faith. They did just what they were told and they put the blood on the doorposts. The church being shifted from passive to active faith. Miracles, yay. Testing, oh no. It's the plumb line that shows us exactly where we are with the Lord. Well, it's not over yet. Because then after the miracles and after the worship, we get to chapter 14, and they get up against the Red Sea. And here comes the Egyptians behind them. And verse 10, and as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified, living by sight, and they cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us, Moses, to bring us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone and let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Again, appealing to Egypt, let's go back, shunning their deliverer over and over and over again. And the Lord says, stand fast. There's a miracle coming. So after their unbelief, after their complaining, then comes the miracle of the Red Sea parting. And then at the end of chapter 14, Israel, verse 31, saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians. The people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses' servant. And then they break into worship in chapter 15. And they Moses and the Israelites sang the song to the Lord, Revelation 15. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both the horse and the driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength, not Pharaoh. The Lord is my defense, not Egypt. The Lord has become my salvation, not my abuser. He is my God, and I will praise him. 
my father's God and I will exalt him. Well, I wish that I could tell you the Israelites stopped here and figured it out, but you and I both know they kept doubting, disbelieving the manna, the quail, the grumbling, the golden calf over and over and over again. The Lord kept delivering them. What was he doing? He was changing their thinking. They had been brought out of Egypt from death to life, but their little brains had not yet caught up with living in true deliverance and sonship. See, because slaves are in the grind, but sons are in the flow. Slaves are in the grind of religious duty and work like Pharisees, trying to earn it, working real hard. But sons like Jesus, they're in the flow. They're in the flow of the Holy Spirit. Slaves work to bear fruit. Sons abide to bear fruit. There is no such thing as a heavily burdened son because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And so when I get to Tuesday or Wednesday and I feel that weight, and when I get to Saturday and I feel that weight, what's it about? My performance. And I'm shifted back into Egypt, into slavery type thinking. I should be building more bricks today. I should be working harder today. And I appeal to Pharaoh, and I appeal to my own self-discipline or my determination or my effort, and I get in this place that the enemy loves, that angel of light. Stay right there. Stay right there, he says. But no, I'm a son, and I stay in the flow. And when I stay there and the oil flows, I bear much fruit, yeah? His yoke is easy. His burden is light. But religious performance is heavy and it's always unattainable. It's always out of your reach. On my best day, if I preach the gospel to five people that day and lead one or two of them to Christ, I'm in no way, shape, or form a different position than when I slept in and ate too much and didn't read my scriptures and sinned the next day. I'm not in a different place I'm a son, and my very love of him as a son keeps me from doing these things. My love for him as a son keeps me in the abiding place, dwelling in the spirit, not gratifying the desires of the sinful nature. Church, the Lord is calling us out of Egypt, but it's not from hell into heaven. It's in our mindset. It's thinking correctly. It's thinking like sons and not slaves. The whole purpose of getting them out of Egypt, the Lord says, was so they might worship me. Israel is my firstborn son. You kill him, I'll kill yours. That's what God says. Israel is my firstborn son. You better let him go, Pharaoh. I want my son to be with me and be led not by performance. I want him to be led from his position as a son. Sons are in the flow. Slaves are in the grind. How you feeling? How you feeling about being a son or a daughter? Grind, work hard, or flow of life through you? His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Last, last passage, Isaiah chapter 31. We want to commit ourselves to living the normal Christian life, which is daily 
casting our burdens on the Lord, letting him carry them that he might sustain us. That's normal. The temptation, the abnormal way, is to go down to Egypt. It says in 31 of Isaiah, woe to those. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, and who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. There is woe for us every time we lean on the flesh for our support. Every time we go to the world for our escape or for our healing, always woe in that. Blessings for those who look to the Lord, to the Holy One of Israel, and seek their help from Him. So, I want to encourage you, do not bear despair this week. It's too heavy. It hurts you. Your, your soul was not made to maintain that. Secondly, do not shun your deliverer. Do not shun the voice of the Lord coming to you, either a scripture, a word, brother, sister speaking to you. This sermon, whatever you're hearing, don't shun that word of deliverance. Embrace it. No matter what the cost is, no matter what has to be burned up for me to leave this way of thinking, I want to move on into new, greener pastures in my mind, transformed by the renewing of my mind from a slavery mindset to a sonship mindset. Amen? I love you guys so much. I, I, I feel the Lord's love for his people so strong and his desire for them is to know his great love, his eternal, his everlasting love. I believe that's what the Lord's getting through to all of us here. So let's stand together, if you would. Lord, I pray for a, a response, even in our hearts today, Lord, to receive your love, to live as sons. Protect us, Lord, from leaning on the arm of the flesh and going to Egypt for our support. I pray for new ways of thinking for all of us. I pray, Father, for a week of casting our burdens on you. I pray specifically that you would prompt people in this room to reach out to brothers and sisters at times and places this week to give words of encouragement and prayer. And I pray for everyone in this room to receive a fresh word this week that would set them free. And I pray, Lord, you would enable us to live the normal Christian life as sons. I want to encourage you guys, if you need any ministry in this area today, do not leave without receiving prayer. The Lord is healing. We're going to have a couple of testimonies last week. Two, two people healed as of Monday morning, completely healed from, from praying for them for, for physical healing. If you need physical healing, if you need emotional healing, if you're being barraged by the enemy right now, accusation and attack, and you can identify with me living in that place of despair, please come forward here this morning. 
and receive some ministry and receive some healing. So bless you guys. Love you all.